We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of The Private Eyes on April 17th, 1980. It was written by Tim Conway and John Myers, and Mel Brooks and John Grant and a bunch of other people if you want to include the borrowed jokes. Uh, it was directed by Lang Elliott and released by New World Pictures. Headed at the time by Roger Corman, it was their highest grossing release of all time while well, that company existed. A sequel about capturing the Wukalar was planned and scrapped, thankfully. Yeah. What? Uh, that's the monster from the end of the film. They keep they keep referencing it throughout the movie. I apparently did not pay good enough attention. She's already to this wiped movie. that part. <laughs> uh, the Biltmore Estate in Asheville, North Carolina was built for George Washington Vanderbilt the second from 1889 to 1895 and is the largest privately owned house in the united states it is still owned by his descendants it was also used in forrest gump richie rich being there last of the mohicans patch adams and hannibal among others the house had to be insured for 400 million dollars for the production all the secret passages are authentic to the home which is super crazy so cool and uh, that reminds me of uh, when they did the Greystone stuff on MacGyver. Whenever they go into secret passages, those are all authentic to the home also. Right. So th- that's not just something that was made up for the movie? The only thing that was made for the movie was the rotating wall. Yeah. That uh, where, when the chairs were being swapped. And the homeowner liked that pro- set that they built so much that he left it in place in the house. It's kind of baffling to me that, that there were actually ever secret passageways in houses. Like, I thought that was something that's always been just made up for the movies. No, like, it's a I real understand thing. that, like, older houses, uh, you know, would have, like, servant passageways. Right, that's what they like were. That. But these, like, were legit hidden doors in the mm-hmm. wall. Yeah, that's just how they disguised it so that you didn't have to see how, how the staff got around the home. I'm so very sneaky. Charles' <laughs> <laughs> character. Oh, you kind of snuck up on me there. I am very, very sneaky, sir. I also like the concept that you just have these like hallways. Like, there's no restrictions on how to get in or out. You can't like ever secure a room. Yeah, because I, there's always another way in. I also want to believe that there were actually paintings with the eyes cut out when they got there <laughs> in the separate bedrooms. Tim Conway, intrigued by the home's library, asked to see a specific rare book which they soon realized was missing from the library. Uh, initially, he was accused of stealing the book himself, but further inspection revealed that a total of 60 rare books had been stolen by a security guard on the property. Um, he worked at the home. It wasn't a part of the production. And uh, he was charged and sentenced in 1981 for the crime of stealing from the library. So they wouldn't have caught it if Tim Conway hadn't been like, oh, I heard you have this book. Can I take a look at it? And that's when they realized that some books were missing. Uh, this is the sixth and final team-up of Tim Conway and Don Knotts, not including a cameo in Cannibal Run 2 in 84. Mm-hmm. According to Knotts, the script was written over two days, which I believe. Yeah, that's not shocking at all. Yeah, and it was shot sequentially. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure they were writing as they were going. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. 
So we start the film outside of this mansion where the Morleys, Randolph and Victoria, are getting into a car at night. At first, I, f- at first I was certain that this was Maggie Smith. Oh, okay. But I was, I was like surprised that, like, oh, this is 1980. Maggie Smith was still really young. But she sounds like old Maggie Smith. That's fine. <laughs> I had the exact same thought, actually. Well, she would definitely play that part if they remade the film today. Yeah, except that this part lasts all of, like, two minutes. Right. Which is all this movie would be worth of Maggie Smith's yes. time. That would be her entire budget. Would be That's how much they could pay for her. While they're sitting in the car, Randolph at one point says, All's well that ends satisfactorily. All's well that ends satisfactorily. Which is a clue moving forward. <laughs> and a huge spoiler. Uh, Victoria is strangled while Randolph is in the house looking for something. Yeah, he goes back for his smokes. Right. And and she corrects him like, Oh, you're not saying it correctly and I was like, Is he like a spy? Are they like are they like like sleeper agents and they haven't quite adapted Because I had no idea what was going on in this movie from from like I had no nothing no nothing about this movie. So I was like, Are they like undercover spies and they don't quite have the parlance right or something like that? Yeah. But I don't get why it was even a plot point to bring up. Yeah. But he comes back with them and she's dead uh, in the passenger seat, which here we call the driver's seat. Yeah, uh, and he is struck in the back of the head with a pipe and knocked unconscious. And then their Rolls Royce is basically stolen and driven into a lake, mm-hmm. which almost killed the stunt driver because the there was a person behind the wheel of the car and it was supposed to get pulled back out of the lake immediately, and it got stuck in a bunch of mud and they couldn't get it out of the lake, so he had to get out of the car. And then a newspaper headline announces the deaths of Randolph and Victoria Morley. And then we move into this really half-assed animated credits sequence yeah it feels like it's trying so hard to be pink panther but it's just the same joke over and over and over again which is this hooded grim reaper figure pushes a bomb to them and then it explodes but they never even react to the explosions they're just Mm kind of like oh the bomb went off let's reset and it just happens over and over again i think that this sequence this title sequence gives it I mean, as well as some of the look at the rest of the movie it, it feels like a much older movie than it actually is for sure yeah it, it feels like uh you know early 70s type of movie and i think that's why it's the last one that they did together because i think even when they were sitting down to watch this movie they were like oh these are done like <laughs> people didn't like this one um, oh, they liked it enough. It made like nine times its budget back. Right, but the budget was almost nothing to begin with. That's true. Um, there, there is a quick clip in that animated intro where someone like flips a painting over, and on the back it says the shadow was here, which at the time I thought was just a dumb joke about like the shadow, like the radio program. But they start referring to this character as the shadow over the course of the film, mm. this hooded figure. We come back to live action and we have the car with Inspector Winship and Dr. Tart, uh, clearly playing a, a Sherlock Holmes and, and uh, Watson, Watson parody, yeah. but uh, they're Americans. They're detectives from America who are, for some reason, working with Scotland Yard. Yeah, they never really explain that. It no. doesn't make any sense to me. Well, they say at some point it's like it's because of your inventions that we can't go home. Yeah, we can't work in America, but for some reason Scotland puts up with us. Yeah. But uh, yeah, <laughs> okay, fine. England puts up with it. <laughs> London, England. <laughs> Scotland is England's yard, their backyard. Oh, kind of like how Canada's our hat. Yeah. Okay. They have a lot of pigeons in the back seat, which will be used for messaging. 
<laughs> moving forward. What year uh, is this supposed to be taking place in? 1940, I think. They show... I think it's 43 on the newspaper. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Tim Conway pulls out the time gun, which is one of his inventions that has caused problems for them, and he's waving it around. It's a gun that it doesn't shoot people through time or anything. It just fires a bullet every hour as long as it's as the loaded. safety isn't on and it's loaded. Yeah. And uh, we promptly get a shot through the passenger side window of this car. By the way, better turn it off. It's almost three o'clock. And then uh, I like Tim Conway just sort of like pulling the panes of glass out of the window and like pushing it into the road. I think I waited the entire movie for that to have a significant payoff because it returns, yeah. but the payoff is never right. good, good yeah. enough for it's this It's not quite joke. Chekhov's gun. It's yeah. just kind of the time gun. Yeah. It would, it would have been a great thing if like, someone had, like, it's like, I'll just hang on to this and then, yeah. you know, gets, shoots themselves later on. Or like on. at the last second, like, it looks like they're about to die and then someone gets shot and they're like, oh, this thing's still on. I thought I turned it off or, at or, exactly an hour past when it went off the first time. Or, or even a great joke. Like is that they know it's gonna go off, but he's like, that like he looks at his watch. He's like, it doesn't go off. It's like, oh, your watch is like probably a little bit, a little bit slow. Hang on, hang on. <laughs> like, like, did you wind the watch on the gun? <laughs> oh no, I didn't. Yeah, so many opportunities for a funny joke. Yeah, never happens. No, they don't take advantage of those. And, uh, and this is like his only crazy invention. The only one that we see, other than if if the pigeon, the messenger pigeons are supposed to be an invention, but and, and, that's the, and a the thing really, that and the and the and Joker's gun. From Batman 1989. Right, yeah. They pull up to a gas station where gas is 10 cents a gallon. And uh, the station attendant recognizes them from the paper. And he gets very excited because they're the two dumb detectives. Yeah. Like there's some article about how famously dumb they are and how they bungled some huge case in America mm-hmm. and got sent there. Um, but this guy sounds extremely Australian. Right. Do you know who this guy is? Oh, I know who this guy is. <laughs> I was so I excited. I don't know who this guy is. Both of these guys. The, the two Who guys at the they? gas station. You remember the guy that... Okay, so there's the gas station attendant and there's yes. maybe his father. Yes. Some old yeah, man. An older Roy. gentleman uh, who like has like you know his bottom jaw sticks out and he's yeah. got a big white beard. That's Blue. That's my boy Blue. You're my boy Blue. From old school. Oh, that guy. And uh, I cannot believe he was still alive when old school came out considering how old he yeah. is in this scene in yeah. 1980. Uh, I, I pulled him up here. Hang on. His name is Patrick Cranshaw. Uh, he got. I was looking at his different credits. This is uh, great. Uh, he got his first credit as of old man in an episode of Green Acres in 1970. <laughs> so that was the first time he was credited as an old man. Yeah, and, and he then died he like on, two years after old school, which is what like 2006 or seven. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he also plays the hobo in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Nice. Uh, he's an ancient sorter in the Hudsucker proxy. Yeah, yeah. The guy great. on the assembly line. And uh, he plays Norm's grandpa on the Norm series, the, mm. the sitcom on Norm MacDonald. But the gas station attendant uh-huh. is Abe Lincoln from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Isn't <laughs> that awesome? What, that's wonderful. Yes. I love uh, these two people are my favorite people in the movie and they don't they don't show up past this scene. Which it's, is it's, like, it's like when you see Socrates in, in Scrooge. You're right. Like, oh, Socrates! <laughs> Are you him? Are you he? <laughs> of course, because they're idiots, uh, they sign the autographs on the paper about how they're idiots and then promptly blow up the gas station, spilling gas everywhere and knocking someone's cigar on the ground so that the whole thing goes up in flames. Yeah. Um, and while they're making a joke about how they're certain to leave a trail of their screw-ups. Um, and then they pull up to the mansion. 
we get the Bond theme very briefly here. I heard that as well. Yeah, it, they worked it into like the beginning of the score to the film. So it comes back on and off, but this is the first note of it that we get. The butler brings them into the home, but then attacks Tart every time he mentions murder. Mm-hmm. It's his trigger word. Yeah, it's a hilarious recurring joke that's not funny at all. It's not funny the first time, and it gets progressively less funny. The only way to, to stop him is to beat him? Yeah, either smack him across the face or literally knee him in the balls. Also, like, once again... The joke never really has a payoff. No, it doesn't. So you would think they're set, they're setting something up by the fact that this keeps reoccurring, but it literally goes nowhere. Yeah, and they don't. They also don't explain his aversion to this word at all over the course of the plot of the film. Except that he was accused of killing his family. Right. So anytime he's heard the word murder in any context since then, he was gone crazy. Yeah. Okay. Well, this woman comes out. What What would you say this woman's job title is? She's uh, a member of the staff of the... Well, she's. I think she's credited as nanny. Okay. She's the nanny to two old people. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Well, it, it's not the weirdest cast of characters that they no, have. No, no. But I'm just saying, like, when I was going through it, I was like, oh, is this like... This is this is the groundskeeper? No, it's not the groundskeeper. There's a groundskeeper character. Is this a maid? No, it's not the maid. Is it, Who is this person? What is her title? What does she do for the house? Is she the chef? No, she's not the chef. There's a mm. chef. So I'm not clear oh, what this... the chef what this woman's uh, official title is but she's the one who keeps slapping and kneeing uh, the butler in the balls so that he will stop freaking out about the word murder um, they present a letter signed by lord morley after his death asking him to investigate his death mm-hmm. it's not a joke it's just it just doesn't make sense then they steal the walk this way joke because mm. the butler got kneed in the balls and he says walk this way and he sort of limps off screen and then the other two limp off screen to follow him we see a hooded figure watching from behind a, a hidden door in the wall. Very obviously watching. Yeah. Like later on they use the old eye behind the painting gag. But here it's it, clearly it, in view of everyone. Yeah, it's just leaning in a doorway. Yeah. They're, they're introduced to the mistress, Randolph's mistress. And she says that she's the sole heir to the fortune, but if, if she dies that the staff gets to split the money. She's not the she's not the mistress. She's she's just the mistress of the house. Of the house, yeah, like head of household type. So thing. she's cheating with the house. Yes. Got it. <laughs> now I understand it completely. Anyway, she's the sole heir to the fortune. Um and if she dies, then the staff gets it. Uh Tim Conway decides he's going to send a message to <laughs> Scotland Yard. This is the only time I laughed at this the movie. This I is think. a really solid uh <laughs> solid joke that actually got me. Uh, he takes out a pigeon, he writes the message, and then he goes to throw it out the window. But the window is shut, and he throws a live pigeon through a plate glass window. Better send it off to the yard and let him know we're here. And then we see it, like, disoriented. It can't even fly anymore. It probably broke its neck. <laughs> no, they probably just drugged him or something. Yeah, no, I don't know. That was well, pretty upsetting. Maybe they just threw it through a plate glass window. <laughs> But either way, it's funny the way it wobbles around on the ground afterwards. At Vintage Video, we do not condone the harming of animals for the making of films. Correct. I'm I'm ironically only when it was funny. Yeah. (laughs) Only before they put a disclaimer at the end of films, which didn't happen until I think '83. The two detectives move into Morley's office, where they find something in the trash. 
It's the they newspaper. It, it's the article about how dumb they are. Yeah. And how they screwed up the case. Um, the implication being, I think that someone read that article and then sent them the letter to right. hire them after reading about how dumb they were. Like they specifically wanted two bad detectives on the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, they moved through the Cigar. hidden passageways. Yeah, they um they they find a walk-in humidor. Right. And but and they go to grab a cigar, but there's a dog locked up inside, and the dog scares them into tumbling backwards through the first secret door. Right. And as they're moving through this passage, they find Santa's skeleton. <laughs> what was happening? I think here? the implication is that Santa actually died in this chimney. Yeah. And they fall through the chimney and roll out into uh, the living room. Well, and, a, yeah, a bomb, a classic cartoon-style round bomb with fuse rolls yes. out. But th- it doesn't actually injure them in any way beyond no. just, like, pushing them down this chimney. And they roll out uh, of a fireplace into the middle of a living room where they meet the entire staff of the property. Which is surprisingly few people for how big this place is. Right. But each one of them is just insane yes so as we're moving through i think the first person we meet is the chef um maybe i i have i have them i have them all listed okay but i don't have them in any particular order (laughs) so the chef is uh an asian stereotype it's actually at least played by a japanese person yeah but he i just feel so bad for him yeah because it's just everything that's wrong with everything and i feel like they saw murder by death and they were like oh those kind of jokes are okay and it's like no it, the point you have to do it exactly right to make it clear that you're making a joke about how they use those characters in old movies right. and here it just feels like you're trying to make jokes about chinese and japanese people I, I felt like that throughout the entire movie that they saw murder by death and they're like we could do that yeah and then they really didn't do that yeah so the chef is the first person they meet, and he's basically like a crazy samurai mm-hmm. on top of being the chef of the house. Uh, we meet the maid, who is yeah. like this Classic like, French maid. Yeah. She, she's wearing the French maid outfit. She's like blonde and has a French accent. Uh, we meet the groundskeeper, who's like a crazy old Scottish guy covered in dirt. Yeah, he, and, he's a, and he's a gypsy. Oh, right. He's a gypsy. That's right. A, a Romany, if you're going to be more politically correct. We meet the chauffeur, I think. Is one of the people. Uh, uh, I don't have a chauffeur on here. I have, I have uh, the chef. I have the ground, groundskeeper Tibbet, the gypsy, uh, Hilda, the maid. What is Jock's job? Jock is. Oh, maybe he is the chauffeur. I think he was the chauffeur. But he's like the hunchback of Notre Dame. Yeah. Kind of. And he's clearly supposed to be like Jacques, like it's yeah. a French name, but they just call him Jock, and he's credited as Jock. And then we have the butler and the woman from the front right. door. Um, and when I was reading up about the movie, like they, they credit the the woman who speaks with a German accent as a Nazi. Oh, do they? Yeah. And I was like, well, yeah, this is like, if this was the 40s, I guess they would still be around. Yeah. But they would be active. Right. <laughs> I mean, World War II is happening right now. But this woman was, for some reason, a Nazi and working as a... As a, yeah. a maid in London. Yeah. Winship and Tart basically reenact what they think the crime was outside of the house. And by reenacting it, actually commit the crime. So mm-hmm. uh, one person is strangled in the in the passenger seat, not to death, but 
near to death. And then it's Don Knotts is getting choked out. Mm. And then Tim Conway starts the car and basically drives it off like he's going to drive it into the lake again. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Tart has to, like, in a Sherlock Holmesian style, recreate the crime scene mentally. But instead of doing it mentally, does it completely again. Yeah. And but instead of crashing it into a lake this time, they just crash it into the building. Um, and Don Knotts makes a huge leap of like, oh, so he was strangled, he was struck over the head, and the killer stood on the running board and drove the car into the lake. It's like, how did you deduce any of this? Yeah, it, you're, I guess we're just trying to move the plot forward. Yeah, we're just trying to say we know exactly what happened in that scene. So just take it at face value that we know what happened in that scene. Okay, moving forward, uh, we have. Uh, the maid is uh, cleaning a hallway when a hand reaches out of a, a hole in the wall to poison a drink on a cart that she has. And uh, she moves to serve the PIs a drink. And they take it, but it, whatever it was in the drink is like making it bubble. Mm-hmm. And so before they even take a sip of it, they're like, oh, that's weird. The drink is bubbling. And they're like, oh, you probably just have to stir it to calm it down. And they put a spoon in it to stir it. And it totally like, it's like acid just, basically. Yeah. And it eats through the whole spoon, and he pulls it out, and it's just a spoon handle. So maybe we need to cover this later when we reveal who the killer actually is. But I'm confused as to who invited them here. Okay, we can. I, I well, think we, I know who invited them. Yeah, here. I, I believe I know as well. Okay, uh, we can we can wait till the big reveal. Well, I just yeah okay. I just want to make sure that. I think there's sense. still going to be some big holes. It just doesn't make sense to me that the killer is trying to <laughs> kill them in this scene. Like, do, do they need to be gotten out of the way? I don't even if, think if that they're, they're... If they're bumbling idiots like that aren't really going to solve this case, aren't they supposed to just fulfill their job of not solving the case and leave? Why invite them at all if you didn't want them to solve the case? That's right. what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. There's There's problems with it. Uh, we get a second pigeon message. Uh, this time it's thrown out of a real window that is open, but it is immediately struck by lightning. <laughs> I thought it was shot. I think it's shot. I just assumed that the killer shot the bird to prevent the message from mm. leaving. Oh, maybe. There was a scene where they were, they talk to the chef and he just keeps like gesturing. He's like chopping things with his samurai swords on right. the table and they... they have this horribly racist just like they constantly bowing and uh oh right they yeah do that so, joke. so yeah then then the tea then they go to question him about the tea because they think oh because i think uh nanny uh says that oh uh you know uatsu created this tea for you yeah and they go to talk to him and they find him in the dumbwaiter killed. yeah he's like folded in half in the dumbwaiter with like a chicken in his lap yeah and they're like oh well this guy's dead and then they get a clue on the on the chef. In this house, it's hard to survive. Some will be dead who are now alive. Mr. Yawatsum is gone because he knew too much. Bye for now, but rest assured, we'll keep in constant contact with each other. That's how the message ends. So mm-hmm. it's like there's a clear rhyme, but then the joke is that they... They don't rhyme. They divert from the rhyme. It's it's kind of funny here. It's mi- then, mildly amusing the first time. Yes, mm-hmm. but then when it keeps going, then you're just like, oh, they're just going to do this every time. And it stops being funny immediately with the second one because you you see it coming every time. Uh, third Pigeon is uh, is released to send a message to Scotland Yard, but it lands next to the chicken in the chef's lap and mm-hmm. cries because it was a distant relative. Yeah. 
Uh, the, the running gag here, too, with all the bodies that they're going to find is that they discover the body, but when they try to bring someone to show the body, the, the, it, disappears. It, it disappears. Yeah. So as they they move out of the room, and then the dumbwaiter moves and basically swallows this body. It, like, folds in half as the dumbwaiter's going down, mm-hmm. and then when they come back, it's just gone. Uh, they go to find the groundskeeper who is digging a grave, very yeah. blatantly digging a grave in the cemetery. And they're like, what are you doing? And he said, I'm digging for worms. Uh, and he says, he, he lets them know that Morley's crypt was actually built to unlock from the inside because he was deathly afraid of being buried alive. Mm-hmm. Which is similar to, I want to say, Thomas Jefferson or somebody was afraid of being buried alive and had a had one of those bells. That was com- yeah. that was common at the time, yeah. though, to to put a bell with a string that went down to the to the coffin so that you could ring it if you woke up buried alive. Because doctors were notoriously shit back then. And but, but like, who's, I who's, just took who, a nap. Who's who's watching out for all the bells? That's what the person in the graveyard was supposed oh. to do. Like their job was to listen for the bells. <laughs> I would love to. That would be a cool scene in a movie like that takes place in the seventeen or eighteen hundreds, where that guy's there in the middle of the night, and suddenly all the bells start ringing at the same time. It's just like, oh shit. It's just a windy night. <laughs> terrible doctor. Oh yeah, it's just a it's just a breeze. <laughs> That'd be great. They decide that uh, they're going to try and find his crypt when they get that message, but uh, when they come back to where Tebbit was, he's been killed, mm-hmm. and the gravestone, the, a fully made out gravestone, has another bad rhyme on it. To dig your own grave is quite a sight, but to bury yourself is not very bright. There are more to kill, and the job will be done. Now there are five. Soon there'll be a lot less. You'd have to plan so far ahead to like carve that into a gravestone and get it there in time. Yeah, it's not clear how long this plan took to put together anyway. <laughs> but uh, they move into the house. Well, uh, they they immediately go back to find to find Jock. Jock, and yeah. he's dead. Yeah, he's been killed. They get another bad rhyme. If Jock could talk, he'd give you a clue. But now that he's dead, what can you do? deserve what he got i don't regret it a bit by the way you're standing in bull caca all of the bodies disappear what they are back in their room in the mansion and don not says oh get my coat out of the closet and he goes to get his coat out of the closet and the closet's empty he says your coat's not there he says well check again i'm pretty sure it's in there he's like there was there's nothing in her it's empty and he said open it again and then he opens it again and the coat's there um and there's a message with the coat I don't remember what the message says. It doesn't matter. Did they even read it? I said when I died that I'd come back. If you believe in ghosts, you're on the right track. I'm out of the grave and roaming the moors. If you want to be safe, you better lock all the windows and screens. Yeah, they read all of them, and they're all the rhymes are stupid because they don't rhyme except for one. There's only one yeah, that rhymes. Yeah, there's one that rhymes, and I was like, is that a clue that this is the person? But... Yeah, so they get a note here, but it's not like after a person died, so I don't understand... Well, because they go out... At this point, Tim Conway's convinced that Morley isn't dead. Right, so, so they, they want to go to the mausoleum. Yeah, so they go to the mausoleum and open up the crypt. And there's a freaking Halloween decoration pop yeah. up out of it. Yeah. I was like, it what? looks like Ralph in To All a Good Night. When yeah. he sits up in the in the bushes, it just like pops up and yeah. scares them and they run out. Um, and that's where they find Hilda dead in the elevator. Right. Um, and... Uh, Hilda's note is the one that does rhyme for some reason. Hilda is dead, and here's something to note. You can't bury her at sea, because her bosoms will float. But then her body disappears, 
And they find another passage, which they follow to the heiress's room, and they start watching her undress through holes in a painting. Mm -hmm. The butler dies. His note doesn't rhyme, so we're back to the notes not rhyming. Now there's one less that has to be fed. But Justin can't serve you, because he's dead. Uh, The guru was right. You can come back. When you said there was a ghost, you were on the right trail. Tart is killed? (laughs) because <laughs> uh, they they're moving through a passage and they find the butler's body in a chair strangled uh, strangled by a cuckoo, cuckoo clock right in which he deliberately set to midnight so he could get the bird out and kill it yes and this is the wall that rotates and it rotates back around and they leave tart's tart sitting in the chair strangled and it looks like he's dead there also but it turns out he's not dead. It mm-hmm. just almost killed Tart. Yeah. Um, for no reason. Then the last staff member dies. The woman yeah. who's been kneeing the butler in the ball. So basically the only person we have left is the heiress. That we know of. Mm-hmm. And then presumably there's there's the corpses of the Morleys. Uh, that we know at least one is not in its grave. Because there's a Halloween decoration in there instead of a body. Uh, we get a joke that I preferred in uh, Ernest Scared Stupid. Our two detectives follow the clues to a trap room where they're almost beheaded, but then they get dumped through a garbage chute and squeezed into a block of trash, mm-hmm. which I think Ernest P. World did best because he's like walking around with the block of trash around right. him. But but again, nothing happens to them. These these guys are not killable. Yeah, and and so I don't know if they were ever in any real danger. I don't even know if anyone was trying to kill them. Right. Yeah. Well, we know that somebody was trying to kill them because somebody put poison in their drink at some point. But maybe that person knew that it would never get to their mouths somehow. And they wanted them to know there was poison in it? Yes, because they wanted them to know that there was a murderer in the house. I, I'm i just Plot guessing. makes no sense. Yeah. <laughs> yes, no, it doesn't make any sense. But uh, they come out of the garbage chute, squeezed into a block of trash. They go to find the heiress who's like packing up her stuff mm-hmm. in this atrium area. And she basically confesses that she killed the Morleys. And as she's confessing that she killed the Morleys, the entire staff walks in. Because yeah. anytime you see a body disappear in one of these murder mystery movies, it means that person wasn't dead. Yeah. You never go back and find that same corpse somewhere else and go, yep, still dead. It's always because the person was alive and they had to hide the body before someone could check and see that it wasn't dead. Basically, they are thanked by Randolph yeah, Mor- for getting the confession from her. Yeah, so Morley is alive. He is the shadow, or at least was the shadow sometimes, because in his flashback, he sees Phyllis as the shadow. Right. Uh, so maybe the one who poisoned the tea was Phyllis as the okay. shadow? So this this is why I'm super confused about this, because, okay, so Morley set this whole thing up, but he didn't set it up until after... His wife was killed. Yeah. So, or or he knew it was coming and set it up before his wife was killed. And was killed. totally okay with the wife getting killed in the Apparently, process. Apparently, because he faked getting knocked out and driven into a lake. No, he said, he said when they explained the whole thing, he said he woke up and he got out of the car. And then he knew that everybody would think he's dead. And he had to like plot to reveal that she did it. Okay. So, which means he set this whole thing up in a matter of probably days to to get them here. So, I assume he wrote the letter to get them right. there. I thought he wrote the letter before his wife was even killed. 
No, see, I, I, I'm more with Jesse. I think that... That he wrote it that night? Yeah. That he walked he, sopping wet back into the castle and wrote yeah. the letter? Okay. Got, a sta- the got the staff them, together and said, hey, Phyllis just tried to kill me. Here's the plan. But Phyllis doesn't know that someone's killing the staff. Because she doesn't even seem to know that any of them are dead. Correct. She's just confessing to killing the Morleys. So, so what's the elaborate the, point of killing all the staff? The only point would be to confuse the two detectives that you hired to get the confession? I'm assuming that this is like a Harry Crumb situation in which that they're just so infuriating that she just was like, yes, fine. I did it. I killed them. I'm sick of you two. Yeah. Either way, I don't get it. And the motivations don't make any sense. And the timing doesn't make any sense. Um. But they're rewarded with a large sarcophagus that we mm. saw in one of the passages that they were sneaking through. And uh, as they're driving, they continue their discussion of the, the Wukalar, which is a large pig-faced man mm-hmm. creature, which uh, then rises from the sarcophagus predictably and attacks them in the car. And they drive it off the side of the road. The end. That's this movie. So Yeah, that was rough. It was pretty bad. Uh, director Lang Elliott, uh, not a whole lot. He's currently working on a Cujo sequel or reboot. It's called Cujo Canine Unit Joint Ops. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like garbage to me. I hope that that is a Stephen King approved yes, well, story. Yes, it has to be, right? Is there anything that's, that's not Stephen King approved other than Kubrick's Shining? This was written by Tim Conway, as we said before, who uh, appears in the film as Dr. Tart and John Myers. Uh, John Myers played Doyle in The Prize Fighter with Conway and Knotts, which he also co-wrote with Conway. Conway obviously was in the Apple Dumpling Gang movies with Knotts. He came back three years later for a TV series called Ace Crawford Private Eye that might have been like he was disappointed with how this film turned out and he wanted to come out and do a private eye show, but the show didn't last for very long. But he's probably best known as Barnacle Boy on SpongeBob SquarePants. Yes. uh, And also the Carol Burnett Show, but mostly SpongeBob. (laughs) Don Knotts was Inspector Winship, who Mm. you probably know from the Andy Griffith Show or Three's Company. Uh, He also appears in Mad, 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 Mad World and a bunch of other Disney live action Cartoons and all that stuff. This is what's really upsetting, that I believe that Don Knotts and Tim Conway are better than this. And I believe that Don Knotts is better than this. <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, because Don Knotts had a long career before and had a long career after yeah. this movie. Uh, both just his voice and just his, you know, Mr. Furley is a classic TV character. Yeah. Uh, but this just seemed like a, a cash grab or what? I don't know what yeah, it was. Yeah, there, there was really not not much thought put into it. Um and I watched the Apple Dumpling Gang to prepare for this. And they're essentially playing the same exact characters, which are goofy and not funny. And I yeah. can't believe that movie got a sequel either. Trisha Noble was Mistress Phyllis Morley. That's the the mm-hmm. suspected Maggie Smith. Uh, she plays uh, Jobel Naberi in Revenge of the Sith. I don't know who that is. I thought you might. Uh, I think that you're thinking of the, I think you have the wrong Morley. Trisha Noble plays oh, sorry, the young Mistress, Morley. Mistress yeah. Morley. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, she plays Padme's mother in episodes two and three, whose scenes were deleted. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> so she's she's in them, but she's not in them. Okay, so that that was the mistress, not 
not the Maggie Smith character. Yeah. Uh, Bernard Fox was the butler, Justin, mm-hmm. who keeps getting kneed in the balls. He's the voice of the chairman in the Rescuers movies. Um, Rescuers and Rescuers Down yeah. Under. Um, he plays Colonel Gracie in Titanic. And he's Captain Havelock in The yeah. Mummy. Yeah, it was such a great part that, that doesn't get explored very much. Yeah. But I, I know him best as Dr. Bombay uh, from Bewitched. Oh, okay. Because like know that one. he was the the warlock doctor. Whenever there was like a medical witch problem, and got doc, paging Doctor Bombay, Doctor Bombay, emergency, and he would show come up. right away. And he would always show up in some kind of crazy garb because he was immediately called from whatever he was doing <laughs> and had to appear. So he one time he's like a matador. He's like in in a big fur coat, you know, because he was in the North Pole. Yeah. And so it's just like it's always an inconvenience that he gets summoned. That's funny. Um. We also have uh, Grace Zabriskie playing the nanny character, mm-hmm. uh, whatever that means. Uh, she was Sarah Palmer on Twin Peaks, the mother yeah. of the disappeared girl. Uh, she plays Dottie in Armageddon. <laughs> yes! <laughs> uh, Dottie in Armageddon, if you haven't seen the film recently, is the wife of the guy who discovers the meteor, and he names it after her because he hates her so much. Yeah. I want to name her Dottie after my wife. She's a vicious, life-sucking bitch from which there is no escape. <laughs> So uh, that's the woman that's playing the nanny. Uh, she also plays Grace Poole in Child's Play 2, which is the social worker that Andy gets sent to um, after the first film. And she was Lois Henriksen on on 53 episodes of Big Love, which I didn't watch any of that show, but I've heard good things. Um, John Fujioka was Mr. Uwatsum. Uh The only other credit I thought was worth mentioning was that he was the chief priest in Mortal Kombat. Uh, well, I have a, a, a another credit. Oh, okay. That's going to be interesting because of some connections in this movie. But he played Emperor Hirohito in uh, MacArthur. Oh, okay. In the Gregory Peck MacArthur. And and that's why I'm thinking, like, he, he played the Emperor of Japan yeah. against Gregory Peck as MacArthur. And then he played this character. And then he played this character. Yeah, that's sad. Yeah. I was hoping you were going to be like... You missed Bob Genghis Khan on his list. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's not. No. Uh, but um, there are two other MacArthur uh, From characters. the same version of MacArthur? Yeah, in, in this movie. Oh, interesting. So we'll get to those in a second. <laughs> yeah, as we go. Uh, Erwin Keyes was Jock. Is he in there? No. I didn't think so. But here's the thing about Erwin Keyes, because uh, I did recognize one of his other credits, the credit of Wheezy Joe from Intolerable Cruelty. Oh, okay. Um, cause, but his photograph on IMDb... I recognize him from that, but I don't know what it's from. When I saw the picture of Bernard Fox, I was like, this guy looks so familiar to me, but none of his credits were what I was thinking of, whatever yeah. it was. So I don't know if I'm just confused. But um, but here, I for Jock, I had that he was one of the police in The Warriors. Mm. And he's also Joe Rockhead in the Flintstones movie and Flintstones Viva Rock Vegas, uh, which not a lot of people were in both of those. Yeah. <laughs> so interesting. Uh, Fred Stuffman played Lord Morley. Uh, he was Johnson in Escape from Alcatraz. Mm-hmm. He was a mosaic figure in Network. And I th- this credit jumped out at me. He plays a jewelry salesman in Marathon Man. Hmm. And I was like, I know a jewelry salesman in Marathon Man. Do you know who Harry Gauze is? No. He did the voice of Captain Murphy on Sea Lab 2021. Oh, okay. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. His only live action credit is as a jewelry salesman in Marathon Man. And I was like, they must have just been co-jewelry salesmen in the one scene of Marathon mm-hmm. Man. But I was, as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, he got to work with uh, Captain Murphy from Sea yeah. That's awesome. Well, he also played General Bradley in MacArthur. Okay. 
So, so it's another one of them. That's the second MacArthur connection. Uh, we already mentioned that Robert V. Barron was Abraham Lincoln. Be cool. excellent to each other and party on, dudes. But he also played a POW in MacArthur. <laughs> Did he really? I was like, wait a minute. Now I have to go through every one of these and see if there's any more MacArthur <laughs> references. That's funny. Um, and yeah, we talked about all of Cranshaw's credits. Mm-hmm. And then the last credit on here that I have is Russie Taylor. Yeah. Oh, my God. I was so excited and so sad yeah. at the same time because she just passed away. Um, but she's probably best known as Minnie Mouse. Yeah. Uh, and her husband was Mickey Mouse yeah. for a really long time. And, and, and Martin Prince. Right. Martin Prince from The Simpsons. She also did the voices of Huey, Dewey, and Louie on and the Webby. original Duck. Oh, and she was Webby, Gale? Yeah. Um, and uh, she's also Penny Tompkins on The Critic. Uh, and she was Gonzo on the Muppet Babies, mm-hmm. and this was her very first feature, and she was only used as the voice of the doll. Listen up, dummies. The help is all gone. The house is bare. Now you know a shadow lives there. There is one left to die. Then my job will be done. I like killing people. It's a lot of kicks. Yeah. She had, like, two other credits before this. Yeah. It's essentially, like, this is her start. Yeah. And after this, it was all uphill. <laughs> but it's funny, because, like... The, the t- That's not saying much. Yeah. Well, <laughs> how do you go downhill from that? But, but she, it was, she was uphill all the way to the end of her life. Yeah, that's true. I mean, she just was that's never fair. not working. Yeah. She was even in the new DuckTales. Was she really? Yeah, she played, she played young Donald Duck... In a flashback. Oh, was that just in the first episode when he's dropping them off? <laughs> no, no, no. It's a, it's a much later because it's more the connection with Della. Because Donald was in the first episode, but you're saying he, he was like Donald's in almost every episode. Oh, okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, there's in the second season. There's a whole bunch of stuff about Della Duck. You know, he was right. his mom. You played that song for me that she yeah. sings. And uh, they have, there's a there's a time travel episode. Oh, okay. Where the I think it's I think it's Dewey travels back in time and sees Della and uh, Donald when they were kids. Right. They have to and, collect all the stones so yeah. that they can bring uh, everybody back. Uh, and Rusty Taylor is playing the voice of young Donald. Right. That makes sense. Well, she's great. I love her. It's funny that my three favorite people in this movie are <laughs> Patrick Cranshaw, Robert <laughs> Barron, and Rusty Taylor. Yeah. Jess, what do you think on this up or down? It's a big down. Yeah, it's down. Yeah, it's a, it's a pass. That's a no. All right. Jess, you want to kick us off here? Yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna put this pretty low to the bottom. It's gonna be I think fourth from the bottom for me right now, which is between cereal and a small circle of friends. Okay. Uh, mine is uh, above cereal, but uh, below Forbidden Zone. So Forbidden Zone is moving up. All right. <laughs> it's getting away I'm from excited that bottom. For it. But you put it above cereal, also. Right? I put it above cereal. Yes. Oh, you did put it above cereal. Yeah. I, okay. I, okay. Yeah. No, it was above cereal, below a small circle. Of okay. Friends. Okay. Um, and I'm actually going to do the same thing. Um, above cereal, and you know what? No, I'm putting it below cereal. Uh, this is going between cereal and defiance for me. I think that's about it for this one. If you guys have anything you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Or as we've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show. And if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can support the show through Patreon.com slash VintageVideoPodcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we will be discussing folks, which IMDb (laughs) summarizes thusly. When terrorists take over two oil rigs and threaten to blow them up if their demands are not met, an eccentric anti-terrorism expert volunteers his unique commando unit to stop them. I would say that's almost accurate.
very nearly. Yeah. Uh, we leave you now with the trailer for folks. He's a master strategist. I am telling you how to save the lives of 600 men. Demolitions expert. Get onto the diving section. Tell them I want a wetsuit and a berry gun. And he doesn't need a license to kill. Except for a slight squelch when entering the flesh. They do not make any noise. Roger Moore fights against time and terror as folks. Have I ever let you down? No. What's he like? Very odd. Cheers. On the other hand, I suspect that you picked the right man for the job. A wise decision, I assure you. The target. We're taking command of this ship, Captain. Nobody's going to get hurt if they do exactly what they're told. The plan. We want the British government to pay us a ransom. If anyone takes any action against us, everything goes up immediately. The mission. If I say I will get my men to the wheelhouse unobserved, I will do so. The man. Yesterday, one man completed the exercise. Today, you will all complete the exercise. Folks is fearless. There are over 600 people relying on us to save their lives. Folks is fatal. Kramer and his odious colleagues will be dead. Folks is fantastic. Three, two, one, go! If you want action, nothing will go wrong. If you want danger, now have the money here on time or the whole North Sea will be on fire. If you want adventure, everything is to go as planned. If you want excitement, you want folks. Roger Moore, James Mason, Anthony Perkins, Michael Parks. Folks, he doesn't need a license to kill.